Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are an award-winning, chart-topping podcast, or some people call us an oddcast, for those who value real, different dialogues about how to build a legendary business and a legendary life. Today, we continue our run of extraordinary authors and podcasters with Dr. Christopher Ryan. He's the author of a couple New York Times bestsellers, including Sex at Dawn and civilized to death, the price of progress. He also has a chart-topping dialogue podcast called Tangentially Speaking, which is fantastic. I, uh, If you like um, Follow Your Different, you'll love Tangentially Speaking. Today, we have a fun, sometimes provocative discussion. We talk about everything from Muhammad Ali to what's wrong with, Muhammad, what's wrong with modernity. Yeah, nothing wrong with Muhammad Ali. Uh, how the world is fundamentally changing why he thinks living in a van is awesome, and what it's like for him to make a, a, a living as a roving smart person. You might also be intrigued by our conversation and Dr. Ryan's reaction to my question, are we currently living in a cocoon? This is another great example of the power of a dialogue podcast. Uh, Christopher Ryan has a great brain, and it's fun to hang out in his provocative brain. He's been featured on virtually every media outlet you can imagine, and he's a frequent guest on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. Uh, check out the show notes for this episode to learn more. Now, if you are a business leader or a marketer, check out Lockout on Marketing. We are currently doing the first marketing pod storm. Now, you may have heard of a tweet storm. Marion Webster says a tweet storm is a series of related tweets posted by a Twitter user in quick succession. So we thought, given the current situation, we'd do the world's first marketing pod storm for 30 days, trying to give you a bunch of ideas and strategies to drive both revenue in the short term and design and dominate your market category over the long term. So subscribe to Lockhead on Marketing wherever you get legendary podcasts. And also, as a side note, during the 30 days of the pod storm, every Friday at 11.30 a.m. Pacific time, we will be doing a live Q&A episode in our Facebook group. Now, the last few months have uh, focused us on what's important and the need to eliminate or change uh, complexity. And a lot of businesses have too much complexity and need to get streamlined. And that's where my friends at NetSuite by Oracle come in. NetSuite is the number one cloud business system, including finance, HR, inventory, omni-channel e-commerce, and everything you need in one place to save you time, money, and headaches. So whether you're doing uh, hundreds of millions in sales or a million in sales, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need. Join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite. Visit netsuite.com slash different, and you can pick up your free guide, Seven Actions Business Need to Take Now, and schedule a free NetSuite product tour at netsuite.com slash different. Also, in a crisis, data makes a giant difference. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything, bringing data to every question, decision, and action. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, and then the letter E, as in data to everything, to learn how to turn data into doing. Now, hey-ho, let's go. I 
I mean, he was political, he was philosophical, he was spiritual. Like there was so much more going on than just the showmanship with him, you know? Yeah. And his whole thing with Howard Cosell was just, I mean, what a great combination. And the thing about it that was great, and this is why I think this, this is something that a lot of people don't get today. We were in on the joke and he knew we were in on the joke. Yeah. Right. And so with whether it was with the, the play with Cosell or all the I'm the greatest and all that stuff. Right. It, it was it wasn't arrogant. It was endearing because there was a playfulness about it. Yeah. Like when he said, I'm so pretty, you know, like <laughs> who says that? <laughs> <laughs> what, dude? Yeah. 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 And, yeah, well, uh, yeah. He lives in a special place. And we just had Darren Prince on the podcast a while ago, and he was both Ollie and Frazier's uh, agent for a while. Mm. Wow. Yeah. He, He's right in the thick of it. He's got some amazing stories to tell. That's for sure. I know a guy, um, Pete McCormick, I, I did some projects with him. He's a documentary filmmaker. He did a film called Facing Ali, where he interviewed lots of guys who fought Ali. He never, he never talks to Ali. This is after, you know, the Parkinson's was pretty advanced. Um, but it was really interesting to see the backstory uh, on a lot of the sort of tune-up fights that Ali did. Um, you know, where he'd like have a title defense in, you know, in a year. And so he'd take three fights leading up to it. And of course, they were chosen so he would win them, right? And he's not he's not actually going to test himself. But what he did was he would tell his, I don't know if it was his agent or his trainer, who it was, like he heard one guy, his wife had been killed in a car accident. And he told his his guy, like, hey, line up a fight with that guy. So he's going to get, you know, a quarter of a million dollars or something, right? So he's beating people up, but in a charitable, generous way, you know? I mean, it's, it's just amazing. Yeah. He's only beating people up who need it for financial reasons. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like doing them a big favor, you know? Yeah. Crazy. It's kind of like, uh, you know, Conor McGregor today, right? Like for a long time, maybe a little less so, but, you know, he was the big... He was the big fight if you were a fighter. Yeah. 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 And he's got some charm as well and some humor, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. He sort of effed it up here uh, recently, but for a while he was, uh, yeah, man, maybe he'll redeem himself. You know, it's the funny thing about these fighters, and I'm a huge fight fan, as you could probably tell, but, you know, you expect a 26 year old dude who's making a shit ton of money, who gets paid to beat people up to otherwise be a good human being who you want to emulate. <laughs> it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just amazing. Like I, I've been watching in this whole lockdown. I don't know why, but uh, I find it really relaxing to watch old sort of classic boxing matches. So I've rewatched like Hearns Hagler um, you know, I've, I've watched a bunch of Roberto Duran. I found this channel on YouTube where the, the, it's like, um, the guy breaks down the fight and shows the techniques and how, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard, you know, came up with a different approach to Hagler in this fight and, you know, like things that I don't, I don't understand boxing that well. So it's really helpful. And I think it's just cause it's so primitive that it really 
holds my focus almost like in a meditative kind of way. It's like, you know, boxing and porn are probably the only things that can keep my mind so focused. I know how you feel about both, actually. And you're going to have to send me that that YouTube page because I, you know, it's interesting. um, uh, My producer, Jason DeFilippo, on his podcast with his co-host, Brian Schulmeister, they're both great. They have a podcast called Grumpy Old Geeks. And, And fairly early on into this C19 thing, and I forget which one of them made the comment, but one of them sort of said, you know, now might not be the time to discover new music or new movies or, you know, maybe, but now's definitely a time to go to things that that you really enjoy, that you find comforting, the music that you find the most comforting and, you know, put on airplane or, you know, I don't know, whatever movie makes you feel. Yeah. So I I can see how old boxing matches would make you feel good. Yeah, and some I don't even remember, you know, the Hagler Hearns, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard period was probably early 80s. I was in college, so I, I didn't see some of those. You know, I saw some, I was aware of them, but some of them I didn't see. I hadn't seen the uh, Roberta Duran, no mass, you know, uh, famous fight. So it's cool to go in and see. You see that going. documentary about that? No. There's a great documentary. I'll see if I can find the name of it while we're talking. Where uh, they try to go back because L- L- Leonard himself is not like complete about the thing because he, he didn't understand why Duran just mm. wouldn't get up. So there's it's this whole sort of uh, crusade to go figure out like what why the fuck did Duran just say that's it? And uh, just as a side note. My wife used to be a high-end sort of corporate event planner. So she'd hire all these celebrities to do stuff. Anyway, she met Leonard. And uh, she's a a boxer and a um, Krav Maga fighter, my wife is. And there's this great picture of her and Sugar Ray Leonard squaring off on each other. And it's just, it's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's an ESPN film. I think it's one of the 30 for 30. And it looks like it's just called No Mas. Mm. Yeah, it's called Domas. What what was the conclusion? Did he break a bone or? I don't know. I don't know that it ever really gets. I'm trying to remember because it's been a while since I saw it. Obviously, I don't know that he ever gets this. I, I seem to remember um, uh, Leonard flying back with sort of not a great response. He n- and never really understands why. Mm. Yeah. One of the weirdest things that ever happened in sport. You know, sort of right up there with Mike Tyson biting the <laughs> Hollyfield. yeah. Hollyfield's ear. Yeah. And I remember that was back in the day when you had to rent like a special thing to stick on top of your box and all that. Uh-huh. You had to go to the store. The, remember that? The cable store and you had yeah. a special box so you watch the fucking fights. Anyway, I, and you know, so you got to buy that shit. And, you know, it's all, you know, it's 50 bucks by the time you're sitting down and all this hassle and the cords and all that shit. And then I'm sitting there watching it going, what the fuck? What do you mean he bit him and it's over? That's it? Well, there's no fucking fight? Yeah. Yeah, that was insane. Yeah, I remember that too. Because if you made the expense of buying that thing, you might as well invite some friends over. So often a dinner party or whatever. I, I remember exactly where I was and who I was with. It's crazy. Yeah. One of the weirdest, weirdest ever. Now, yeah. speaking of weird, 
you have this incredible way of writing about like fascinating, weird shit. Nice segue. Right? How do you like that? Go right right to the author stuff, right? Speaking of weird, you're Speaking weird. weird. Hey, Christopher, you're pretty fucking weird. Yeah, well, I guess it takes one to know one. Yeah, I am. You're also, actually, before we get to your writing stuff, I was thinking about this just before. You're one of these sort of guys, and, and it seems like there's more of them now, like there's more stand-up comedians now, who like, you're this insanely smart PhD dude who sort of seems to make a living being a smart guy, writing smart shit, podcasting smart shit, and just sort of generically being a smart guy in the world. And somehow you made that into a living. <laughs> Something happened along the way. I don't know. But like, there's a bunch of you guys now that we didn't really used to yeah. have. They used to be like university professors or whatever. Mm. But we didn't used to have the generic sort of, or not generic is the wrong word, the sort of celebrity, smart thinking, writer, podcaster, dudette and dude. There's like many of you now. And you're like, of course, one of the big guys. Well, I think you're right to, to uh, mention comedians. I think that has a big um, role in all this and also podcasting because now... You know, it used to be if you wanted to, um, you know, sit down and share your opinions with, uh, you know, a hundred young, smart people who are interested in hearing from an old guy like me, you had to get a gig in a university, right? Uh, and universities are designed to filter out people like me or Joe Rogan or you or, you know, like people who are liable to say something outlandish or, uh, you know, that challenges the status quo. Um, and so, yeah, it's one of the, I'm generally kind of pessimistic about, uh, you know, the modern world, but one of the wonderful things is the way that podcasts have almost like a printing press, you know, the invention of the printing press, it just has exploded the opportunity to have direct contact between, uh, someone and an audience and the audience chooses whether or not they're worth listening to. It's not the, you know, the administrators of the university or the publishing house or, you know, the gatekeepers, the gatekeepers are getting blasted out of the water. And so uh, that's a pretty amazing thing. I mean, I, I think a lot of my um, access to audience has come through my friendship with Joe Rogan and um and other podcasters but of course he's sort of the the kingpin these days and um so it's great every time i've been on his show uh you know my audience has you know spiked by whatever 10,000 new listeners and maybe 3,000 of them stick around you know and so it's it's really been wonderful that way and i and i love the way podcasters sort of help each other out too because the audience just keeps growing and growing so there's no need to be territorial about it or, you know, like there are so many people who don't even know what a podcast is yet. Um, so I think it's really the, the generosity and cooperation of it is really cool. It's interesting that you say that because uh, I just celebrated my third year as a podcaster and didn't know anything about it when I got into it. Was a huge fan of podcasts, you know, a super consumer of them. Never really thought I'd do it. Anyway, I have found all that stuff to be true. And the thing to your point that is 
actually quite stunning is there isn't a land grab or at least does hasn't felt this way to me that sort of podcasters are land grabbing and trying to compete with each other that for the most part, and of course there's douchebags in everything, but for the most part, I've had the exact same experience with podcasters, whether they're podcasters who come on my podcast or vice versa or whatever, or you just meet them in general or whatever. They tend to be very uh, enthusiastic and supportive. And and if they happen to like you, then, you know, this notion of, well, uh, I'm going to share my platform with you, right? It sounds sort of a bullshitty way of saying it, but, but it's a powerful thing. And I, I know that feeling you're describing of when somebody who's, you know, much more successful at this reaches hand, reaches a hand down and pulls you up. And then of course it makes you want to do the same and around and around we go. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And Joe's great. And he's helped so many people, so many comedians, you know, like, owe their careers to him. And, uh, he just, that's just his approach to life. He, he just likes to spread it around. He's, He's a good dude. I, I like him a lot. He's under a lot of pressure now. I, I mean, he's just exploded. Like he's crazy. You know, all this stuff with Elon Musk smoking a joint and then Tesla shares dropped by a billion dollars. It's like, what the hell? I mean, it's so, I and mean, it's weird too, because I mean, I consider him a friend obviously, and I've you know known him for years, but 90% of our friendship has happened in his studio you know, on mic. So it's, it's a funny thing. And, and it's the same. I don't know how, how well, you know, the whole LA comedy community, but you know, Duncan Trussell and uh, Moshe Kasher, like all these guys that I know, and Natasha Legero, women as well. Um, I know in that world, uh, but it's like my entire friendship with them is, is recorded <laughs> and broadcast. It's strange. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know that world, but I, I know that exact experience. And I've had um, probably one most notably a dear friend who's been a friend for years and years. Her, her name is Dushka Zapata. And I met her in a business context. She's a PR and communications executive when I was a marketing guy. And anyway, she now has this incredible second life as an author. She's one of the most consumed authors in the history of Cora, And so hundreds of millions of, you know, and all kinds of books and She's incredibly prolific. Um, and now I have this second life as, as, as a podcaster and an author. And so now she was our first guest because she writes all this magical shit. And she's our most re- regular or reoccurring guest. But to your, to your point, Chris, my entire relationship with her now, with some exceptions on the margin, we sometimes talk here and there, but for the most part, my relationship with her for the last three years is recorded. Yeah, yeah. It's strange because on one level, I kind of feel like a little apologetic about it, maybe because it feels performative, maybe, but it really isn't it like and that's the danger of it. When I go to do Joe's show, um, you know, and the fact that he always rolls up a joint before we sit down doesn't help with this. But I forget that there are like a million people listening to this thing, you know, at least. I forget because I'm just sitting there with this guy I haven't seen in a while. Who's a buddy. And like, we're catching up, you know? Yeah. Uh, And I'm so used to having the headphones and the microphone at this point that I don't even notice that anymore. I'm sure you're the same. Um, And so it's a danger. Like, be careful what you say. The first time I went on his show, I, I got way too high and said 
things I shouldn't have said. Within the first five minutes, I was like, oh, I totally fucked this up. And I said to him, uh, Joe, can we just cut this and start over? And he looked at me and he said, he's live, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, fuck. Yeah, you know, it's funny because uh, I'm a huge fan of and, and try to be a um, flag bearer for this um, category or paradigm of podcast called the Dialogue Podcast. And in, in, right. in a business context, there aren't that many. In, in other contexts, there are, of course, many more. And, and Rogan's no question the category king. But it is a weird thing when you say, well, no, we're just going to press record and we're going to have a conversation. And, and to your point, it's easy to forget the mics are there. And, um, and then we're going to be done the conversation. And then the whole world gets here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a strange thing. Um, but on the other hand, and I imagine you probably have this experience as well, it has enriched my life immeasurably to have a podcast. Hmm. Um, because, cool. well, because it, first of all, it has allowed me to meet people I never would have met otherwise, right? Um, and, and until this, you know, coronavirus thing, I only recorded in person. So even if I could have, you know, spoken to, um, you know, the king of Spain, if I can't fly to Spain and sit down with him, I'm not interested. I never did the Zoom stuff. You know, I just find that the awkwardness, the diff the technical difficulties, the delays, the like interruptions, and no, you go, no, you go, it, like drives me crazy. And the other, and it's also very selfish that I I want to meet these people. You know, like. Wim Hof, uh, you know, they agreed. Uh, he, I spoke with his son and he's like, yeah, sure. You know, do you know who Wim Hof is? The Iceman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So, yeah, fascinating dude. And and uh, they're like, yeah, we can do it on Zoom or whatever. And I was like, no, man, I'll fly to Holland. I want to meet this guy. And so I went to Holland. I was in Spain at the time, so it wasn't, you know, that big a flight. Um. And I met him and I met his son and his daughter. And, you know, that was three years ago. And now we're friends. We see each other all over the world, you know, like, and then who has he introduced me to? So it's like my entire life, my, my friends and my connections, it's just blossomed so much from not only having, so the, you know, you've got a podcast, you've got a sizable audience. So someone like that is like, okay, I'll, I'll make it, I'll find an hour for you. But then also when you're with them, it's the kind of conversation people don't have anymore, right? It's just you and me for an hour, nothing else, no phones, no interruptions. Yeah, the phone's off. phone's not even on, right? It's yeah, like yeah. we're going to sit. And to your point, how often today do two people sit down, look each other in the eye, whether it's across the table or, or across a, the internet, and fucking pay attention and just have a, you know, bat the ball back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a loss. Um, but I guess, I don't know how old you are, but you know, I grew up before the internet, the internet started in my mid thirties, basically. So I've sort of seen both worlds and, uh, uh, uh either this is a really shitty camera or you have bad eyes. 
because <laughs> I'm 50, I'll be 52 next week. Oh, well, congratulations. Thanks. You, you guys who shave your heads, I mean, you can, you know, you take away the indicator, right? The age <laughs> indicator. It's like, I don't know, you could be 25 or 50. I don't know. My chest hair is all gray as shit. <laughs> <laughs> You shave that too. Yeah, I gotta trim that, trim that shit down. Although that's uh, right now, I have uh, uh, coronavirus chest hair. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get to a barber. <laughs> so how are you? Um, how are you fending in this uh, in this new reality? What's what happens to a brain like yours as this thing is playing out? Oh, it gets pickled in wine. That that's one thing that happens. Uh, so how much is your consumption up? Oh, I don't know. I'm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I it depends. It's seasonal, you know. I I have a weird lifestyle. I I live in my van um, for the last three summers. I think this would be the fourth summer I have spent the summer in a Sprinter van. Uh, it's a big red, beautiful van called Scarlett Jovanson. And uh, <laughs> my friend has one. It's 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 not um it's it's a sportsmobile, so similar idea, and he calls it Van Diesel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, everybody's got I have a friend who has a little one, a little white one, he calls uh Vanny DeVito. <laughs> <laughs> and just just while we're on it, there's, oh, yeah. a, there's an independent garage here that that uh, focuses on um, uh, Volkswagens. <laughs> they call themselves the old Volks home. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so anyway, I, I live in this van. I had an apartment in L.A. Uh, for a while, for until um, last fall. But I, I spent five months in the van. I got back and I was like, why do I have this apartment? You know, like it's I'm paying thousands of dollars a month for a place to leave the clothes I don't wear and, uh, you know, books that I'm not reading. Like, that's about it, you know. So I got a storage locker and uh, for a couple hundred dollars a month, threw all that stuff in there and live in the van in the summer, cruise around, um, you know, sort of do a circuit. Uh, Pacific Coast, um, British Columbia, down into Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado. So that's, I sort of do that every summer. And then um, in the winters, the idea is to spend the winters in the tropics, um, Bali, Thailand. I love Southeast Asia. Um, so that's sort of, you know, my, my rhythm. And this year it's been a little constricted because you can't really fly. So I came when this stuff got weird. Um, end of July, or sorry, end of January, I flew back because uh, I didn't want to get stranded, you know, in, in Asia with visa running out or something. But I've been I rented a, a house in a tiny little town in Colorado, and uh, I've been here, and it's fantastic. You know, there's no problem with social distancing because there's nobody here and uh you know i go out uh my partner and i go for walks whenever we want ride our bikes around it's the air's clean the water's clean drive down to an hour away to the nearest town i uh, go grocery shopping every week or two and that's about it it's been fantastic but it sounds like you're a guy who sort of likes a somewhat physically distanced lifestyle anyway <laughs> Yeah, well, I like it on and off, you know. I like uh I like solitude and then 
one, you know, it's like everything else. If you let yourself get hungry, you enjoy the food more, right? If you work hard enough to get exhausted, you'll sleep better. It's, you know, it's that back and forth. And um, so I like solitude. I like a good solid chunk of quiet and uh, distance. And then, you know, what I've been doing in previous years is on the trip, I would mention on my podcast and in social media, like, hey, I'm going to be in Seattle on the 14th at this brew pub at 7 p.m. If you want to come out, come on down. And the point of that is that, like, my audience, my podcast audience is a lot of, um, basically, if I had to sort of sum them up, I'd say they're, like, beautiful weirdos. They're, like, they're all like they don't fit in and and it's this beautiful community of people who are similar in their weirdness and and their you know unusual um, qualities and so i really want them to meet each other so i sort of would punctuate these van circuits with these meetups so that people could come and hang out and meet each other and it's been really gratifying cuz like i did one you know i've done them in boulder each year. And last year I went and there were a bunch of people there who came together who had met each other at the previous one, you know, the previous summer. And they're like in relationships now and, you know, living together or just good buddies. They go hiking all the time. It's great. So it's, it, it's, it's a real community. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying, you know, I was trying with those get togethers to bring it into the physical realm as well. Um, you know, which obviously is hard when some of the audience is in Australia or New Zealand or whatever. Um, but uh, this summer, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that because of the social distancing. I don't know how I'm going to handle that. But that's that's been a beautiful thing. And, and I have some friends that I visit each summer and, I'm you know, check in on them and their kids are a year older. And, you know, we float down the river and sort of watching them grow up. It's, it's beautiful. I, I really like this kind of life. So I don't know how this is going to affect me. I've, I've got this place rented through May and, uh, you know, early June, I'm going to take off and head up to Idaho and hide out at some hot springs. I know up there in a national forest and just, uh, chill up there and see what happens. It's just fascinating to me to hear all this because, you know, you sort of, and this is going to be a mass oversimplification, but you know, you've written about how sort of, um, modernity is sort of the downside of it right and and how sort of one and and uh, this may be silly but you'll tell me a a bit of a romantic notion of hundred person tribes living together nicely and then sort of this this ancient view of sex that sounds interesting if not (laughs) more than interesting and and but now you're living this so you're sort of in this situation where you're fighting modernity and you're creating this sort of tribal experience for people, but you're using modern technology to connect all these people. Am I making any sense? It's like, it's like you're, yeah. you, you've created this melange of this stuff, some of which is counter to each other. Does this make any sense to you? <laughs> yeah, no, certainly. I, and it's, you know, that's, you know, when you write a book, your publisher always wants there to be a clean takeaway. Like, okay, what do we do about this, right? Not You can't just write a book explaining the problem. They want to know, you know, what to do. And that's always the part I have trouble with because I'm good at, I think I'm pretty good at seeing and describing a problem. But when it comes to answering it, 
everyone's going to have their own answer. You know, things, I don't like telling people what to do or, or you know, sort of, um, uh, I don't know. I don't like the presumption in giving advice. Um, but the one thing I've tried to say is in both sex at dawn and civilized to death, like, okay, here's the problem. Here's how we know it's a problem. And here's the, here's the evidence, you know? Um, and in both cases, I think the best way to address it is to try to choose the parts of modernity, the tools of modernity that will allow you to access the, the eternal truths of human nature. So, you know, for example, human beings are extremely social animals. That's probably our, our defining characteristic. So if you're dealing with a virus, use technology to connect with other people, all right? Whether it's video chatting with your mom or doing a podcast, like I'm putting out a lot of, a lot more material now on the podcast than I normally do because I know people are sitting at home. So, you know, utilize that, right? Um, nomadism is, is something uh, that's sort of built into our species. So get yourself a sprinter van and cruise around. Nature, we have an appreciation for nature. I've got a, a skylight over my bed in the van so I can lie in bed and look at the stars at night, you know? Uh, sitting by a fire is very comforting for our species because we've done it for up to a million years is, is the last estimate uh, that I saw. Every night we sat by a fire. So there's no question, there's no um, confusion around the fact that looking at a small fire is extremely comforting for the human brain, right? So if you can arrange your life so you have a fireplace and you can you know, relax or light candles at night, there's something about that wavelength that works for our species. Eat good food. Eat, eat animals that weren't terrified and living in their own shit and pump full of antibiotics, right? There, so there are things about our past that if you understand them, you can bring at least some of them into your modern life and your life will be much more satisfying because of that. So you're right. There, there's definitely a melange. We do live in the modern world. It would be silly and self-destructive to refuse to use the tools that we're given, um, but let's use them to increase the quality of life for ourselves and our friends when we can. That's great. Uh, here's the other thing that's sort of on my mind too. Like this may be unfair. Kick me under the table. But if you were to write a chapter of both of those books with the lens of any thinking, any learning that you've done since C-19 started, A, would you write a chapter of either of those books with any kind of a different insight or reflection? And B, if you would, what do you think they might be? Um, you know, I actually had the opportunity to do that because... Um, Three weeks ago, my editor said, hey, we're moving up the publication of the paperback to August. Is there anything you want to change or add in light of what's going on now? Um, this is Civilized to Death, of course. Uh, and I thought about it, and I reread the, the relevant parts of the manuscript. And honestly, there wasn't anything I really wanted to change or add because 
you know, I, I, there's material in there about pandemics and about how a modern civilization is sort of uniquely vulnerable to this sort of thing. Um, and so, I don't know, I, I kind of felt like it would be a little uh, gratuitous to just throw in the coronavirus thing just to like bring it up to date, you know, like um, it, it didn't seem necessary um, because, yeah, I, I think this sort of thing is anticipated in the perspective of both of those books. You know, in Sex at Dawn, for example, one of the things that um, we wrote about was that, um, you know, in both books, we talked about how people believe, modern people believe that our ancestors were vulnerable to, to um, epidemics and, and contagious diseases. And we're really lucky that we have antibiotics now. In fact, almost all the contagious diseases that humans um, have died from in the last 10,000 years came directly from agriculture, were a result of agriculture or of uh, population densities high enough to allow the spread of these things. I was reading something uh, yesterday, I think it was, um, uh, an epidemiologist was talking about how moving forward with this, it's not that we should all be isolated, it's that we should choose a group of people that uh, are really important to us and create these kind of social pods where within that pod, we hang out and we don't worry about it because we all know we're not sick, but we don't have contact outside of the pod without masks and gloves and, and all that kind of thing. So within our pod, we're, you know, we're safe. Outside of it, we have to be very careful. That's like polyamorous relationships, right? They've been doing that for a long time. Those sorts of in, you know, within the group, you don't need to worry about it. Outside of the group, you got to tell everybody. You got to, um, and and in fact, the epidemiologist said, what I imagine is there might be more of a sort of tribal social organization, where you're in your tribe, you take care of each other. Outside of the tribe, you'd be really careful. So I I see these these sort of um, echoes of the distant past that keep, you know, arising in, in the modern world. And I'm hoping that this will be an opportunity for us to reassess how we relate to each other and, you know, what's really important in life. Um, I know, I kind of think sometimes it's like an addict who gets thrown in jail for a couple of months and uh, can't get access to the, whatever the drug was that he or she was using and, and then you get out of jail, you know, if this lockdown sort of eases and then you have to decide, what am I going to go back to? Am I going to go back to spending 10 bucks a day at Starbucks for, you know, three lattes or am I just going to keep making coffee at home the way I've been doing for the last few months cooking at home? Yeah, it's fun. A lot of people are learning to cook for the first time and seeing how satisfying and how much uh, more economical and healthy it is. Things like that. I don't know if I answered your question, but I talked for five minutes. I don't know if you did either, but it was pretty, it, whatever, whatever, you went off on a riff there and you don't interrupt Jimi <laughs> Hendrix in the middle of the riff. <laughs> Not the of the solo. You know, I, I once won an air guitar contest uh, and when I was in high school. I was in this bar in Syracuse, New York, and uh, it, was, it was the, you know, the heyday of air guitar. And... Uh, what they did, they had all, everybody would get out. Everyone who wanted to participate was out on the floor and they played Stairway to Heaven. So everybody's playing air guitar to Stairway to Heaven, right? 
And like it, this judge would go around and if he tapped you on your shoulder, you had to leave. So they just illuminated. And then there was another song. I think it was a Clapton song or something. And then there were like five of us left. And the last song was uh, Jimi Hendrix tune, Foxy Lady, I believe. And I won not because my air guitar technique was particularly amazing. It's because I was the only one who switched and started playing left-handed. Wow. And see, I didn't even know that. And I just pulled <laughs> Jimi Hendrix out of my butt. I could have said Eddie Van Halen or Jimmy Page or Slash or, yeah. or of course, Keith Richards. Or But uh, there you go. We must be yeah. connect, connected on the psychic friend of the internet. So I'm impressed that you won just because you flipped around the other way. Yeah, well, that, that's something that always fascinated me about Hendrix, that he restrung the guitar. You know, he's like, yeah, no, fuck this. I'm left-handed. I'm going to do this my way. He restrung the guitar and played, you know, strumming with his left hand and, and you know, the, the fret with his right hand. It was totally like, I, I don't know anyone else who's done that. It's really... Well, and the crazy thing is, of course... And I don't know how, how how readily available they were in the '60s, but today, of course, you can buy a guitar for a left-handed guitar player. Uh -huh. What what Hendrix, of course, did was say "fuck all that." He just he just took a right-handed Stratocaster and turned it upside down. Yeah, and so where the you know where 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 the dials and the knobs are and all that stuff is upside down. It's com and where the whammy bar is is upside down, right? I guess and he just said yeah. "fuck it." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Free thinker. And then, of course, he started lighting them on fire, which was also pretty cool. Yeah, and playing with your tongue, which, you know, you could play left-handed or right-handed if you're using your tongue, I guess. And, you know, I don't give a shit who you are. The first time you hear Jimi Hendrix play guitar, if that doesn't change something in your life, there's something wrong. I, I have to admit, I the uh, first few times I heard Hendrix, I just thought it was messy and chaotic. I didn't get it. And then I was a freshman in college. I was hanging out with some friends and they were drinking strawberry daiquiris. And um, I had a daiquiri. And they, when they, they said, we're going to go watch the Jimi Hendrix experience later. It was playing on the campus, you know, in the campus theater or whatever. And uh, we're drinking these daiquiri, electric daiquiris. And I was like, oh, electric daiquiris. Oh, I don't know. I never heard of that, but I'll have one. Turns out electric daiquiri means there's LSD in it. And so I drank this daiquiri and started feeling a little weird. And then I was like, hey, what is an electric daiquiri? And they told me, like, oh, okay, well, that's what I'm doing tonight. And we went to see this Hendrix movie. It was concert footage. And I sat there and I was like, oh, that's Jimi Hendrix. Now I get it. Oh, my God. And I never looked back. <laughs> yeah that, that wasn't sloppy that was genius it was it's like jackson pollock it's not a mess it's a genius yeah, yeah just took a little yeah. gateway listening skill set i guess <laughs> exactly and and you know that that relates back to your earlier point about how there are people now sort of um you know, making a living, uh, you know, whatever, being sort of a semi-public figure or whatever. Um, one thing I liked when you sent me your uh, sort of info sheet on doing your podcast was it said like, hey, you know, talk about anything, 
use whatever words you want. Like this is a free fire zone um, as far as conversation goes. And I think that the candor um, that's available now in these podcasts, the authenticity, that it's not filtered, right? If you and I were talking on some radio show, let's say, uh, I couldn't tell a story about taking acid and going and seeing Jimi Hendrix, right? And listeners who are especially listeners who are in their 20s and 30s who grew up with this curated, filtered bullshit reality being fed to them through media, when they hear somebody being honest about their experience, um, I think that's the key. And so, and that wasn't available, right? I mean, you know, Hendrix could be honest about his experience, but your college professor couldn't stand up there and say, yeah, I remember when I took acid the first time and blah, blah, blah. So I, I think, you know, it all sort of ties together that there's this strange way that, um, that there's actually a living to be made in just being honest, strangely. It is weird, right? I mean, because that's been my experience as a quote-unquote business podcaster, author, guy, right? Most business books, I mean, I don't have to tell you. Most, biz, most business podcasts, you know, business podcasts in general are either boring as fuck or they're this sort of, do you remember Tom Vu, the original um, infomercial guy? I came to America with $1 and now I don't know which one of these babes I'm going to, you know, remember him. <laughs> anyway, you know, there's all these guys. He's like, hey, I call them the hustle porn stars, you know, hustle, 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 and buy my course and run. And I've been on, you know, I don't go on these podcasts anymore, but when I first started, you know, I would go on anything. And if one of these big douchebags would have me on, I thought it might be a good thing for me, right? And the thing I always found fascinating about those characters in particular is you'd be waiting for the podcast to start and you'd be chatting just like this, just like you and I are, right? And they say, all right, we'll be on, in, we'll be on, in, you know, three. And there's this crazy persona that they adopt and they want to talk about the value bombs and the this and the that. And they have all these stupid cliches. Like, and I'm like, do you, do you listen to yourself? I mean, you're a fucking carnival barker. You're a douchebag and you say nothing anyway. And so I guess my point is to underscore your point, a, I agree. And in the domain of a, any kind of conversation that might be considered business or career or any of that stuff, or even for that matter, personal growth or personal development, most of the folks in those worlds are deeply inauthentic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, my experience with business has been very strange in the sense that I went, when I was in college, I um, studied literature undergraduate and uh, took a lot of drugs and traveled the good drugs, the drugs that make you think, not the drugs that make you not think. Um, and I skipped my junior year, went to Alaska, hitchhiked from New York to Alaska. Why is it so many PhDs are dr- fucking druggies? <laughs> well, you know, psychedelics in particular are, you know, there's psychedelic means mind manifesting, right? So there's for certain kind of personality, um, they can be extremely educational um, because what they do it, ideally is they show you that your sense of what is real 
is a relatively arbitrary, culturally determined, agreed upon, limited um, view of what's actually out there. You know, which is why, you know, first time I heard Jimi Hendrix, I said, well, that's just nonsense. That doesn't sound like music to me. And then when my mind was opened in, in that way, and I was able to say, wait a minute, there are other ways that music can sound beyond what I've ever heard, right? Um, and that can happen with literature, with art, with nature, with relationships, with so many things. So I think as far as like thinking outside the box to, to you know, use that hackneyed phrase, um, some psychedelics can just explode the box or, or make the box transparent. So it becomes easier to look at um, things from different perspectives. And, and the other really important part of my life in terms of education has been travel, which is the same thing, right? You, you look at your world from far away, you see it differently. Um, Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, um, described this as detribalization, where you, you, you come to a point in your maturation where you realize, oh, I'm in a tribe. I, I just thought I was one of the people. But actually, I'm Navajo, or I'm 20th century North American, white guy, or, you know, and then you move away from that and look back at it, and you start to develop a more comprehensive global awareness. Um, but anyway, I, I hitchhiked to Alaska, got a job on a fishing boat, and worked in a cannery gutting salmon, and then finished college, and then uh, I went to New York City. Um, because there was a woman there that I was uh, hot and bothered over. And I thought I would uh, drive a taxi or, you know, work in a restaurant, whatever. I just wanted to live in a city. That was my, my idea. And be around her and see what was up with her. And uh, it's a long story, but the, the short version of it is I met this guy. I was working in a restaurant. I met this guy one night. We started chatting about a novel he was reading. Uh, next thing, you know, he offered me a job as his personal assistant managing about $50 million worth of real estate in the diamond district. And, uh, so I spent two years, you know, with my degree in Marxist literary criticism, uh, managing commercial real estate in Midtown Manhattan in the diamond district, like negotiating leases with Hasidic Jews and, Russian emigres and just this, this whole bizarre scene there. So I sort of fell into this world of big money and, you know, it was uh, 1985, 86, Reagan administration, stock market's going crazy. Um, you know, everyone's getting rich, doing lots of coke, like that whole world. I was Greed is good. Greed was good. Exactly. That's when that movie came out. Yeah, so I was there and then, uh, but it was weird because my plan was that I was just going to travel around the world and have weird experiences for 10 years. And so initially it's like, wow, this is a weird experience. This fits right in. But then the guy and I became good friends and he wanted me to stay because I was freeing him up to, you know, do lots of entrepreneurial things. It was family, his family owned these buildings. And, um, it got weird because I, I, you know, all my, everyone I knew was like, dude, you, I was making like over a hundred grand. I was 25, 24, no experience other than gutting fish in Alaska. 
making over a hundred grand there. I was living rent free on fifth Avenue and 47th street in a penthouse apartment. It was just like, what? This is crazy, (laughs) but it's not what I want. You know, this isn't the life I want, but for some other person, it's an amazing life. Um, anyway, that that's, yeah, I've talked about this on the podcast. Um, but it's uh, it was bizarre, and and essentially what happened was I kept saying I gotta leave. I you know thank you for this opportunity, but it's just not mine. And we had a dinner one night, and he said, "Look, man, how old are you? Twenty six? I said, "Yeah, twenty seven, whatever I was at that point." He said, "Well, um, when you're thirty, you'll have a net worth of a million dollars, and if you don't, I'll I'll write you a check for the difference, and we can write this up and have it notarized tomorrow." You stay around here till you're 30, you'll be a millionaire, and then you can do whatever you want. And uh, I thought about it for a while and I decided I just couldn't do it. And so uh, I, I quit and flew to India and spent a year and a half traveling around India and Nepal. And uh, yeah, so that's my life. My, my experience with business is like, it was surreal, you know? What was the driver? I mean, that's the different choice or the seemingly different choice, right? Well, you know, when I was a young guy, I remember my father telling me that there were two currencies in life, money and time. And you should never sell your time for money because you'll never get time back, but you can always find money. And, um, I thought about that a lot then because I felt like I'm not enjoying this experience anymore. The first year I enjoyed it. It was new. It was weird. It was crazy. I mean, I was managing, you know, 50 people, the security in these buildings, and I was writing leases, and I was, you know, dealing with the, the building inspectors and contractors, and, you know, it was, there was a lot going on. But then after I kind of got the hang of that. It's like, well, this isn't my world. Like, I don't have any friends. None of these people are like me. You know, my my sense of the good life is to have adventures and travel around with a backpack. And, you know, like, that's what I wanted to be doing then. And I felt like I was losing time. Like, I was selling my life, my time. I was selling it at a very good price. Um, but I was still selling it. And so, uh, um, you know, that, that's what was going on with me. And I also remember a quote from Thoreau that, that I, has always been important to me, which is that a man's wealth is best measured by the things he can do without. And I felt like when I was in Alaska with a backpack, I was free, I was happy, I felt strong. And being in New York, trading my youth for money was weakening me. And I was losing respect for myself. And so that's what really like propelled me out of there. Did you say trading my youth for money? Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting in our world when you do something that uh, is not centered around optimizing your economic outcome. People find it remarkable in our world. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, part of what I wrote about in Civilized to Death is how our world is designed to um, deceive us um, on the things that will actually make our lives meaningful and satisfying. 
it tells us that money is going to do that. It tells us that economic security is going to do that, that a bigger car, a bigger house, et cetera, et cetera. But when you actually look at the research, what you find is that even in the United States, where you know there's virtually no safety net, um, anything above seventy or eighty thousand dollars a year doesn't really have any significant effect on happiness. In fact, sometimes at certain levels, it has a negative effect on happiness. So in Civilized to Death, I wrote about um, you know this guy in Silicon Valley. He's got a net worth of ten or fifteen million, and he's still working you know six days a week. Uh, never takes vacation, is stressed out, takes sleeping pills to, you know, fall asleep at night because he's worried about the job. And he was interviewed in the New York Times several years ago. And the interviewer said to him, like, but dude, why are you doing this? You, you got a net worth of $15 million. You have this incredible house overlooking the ocean. And he says, hey, 15 million bucks isn't what it used to be, right? Like that guy down the street, he's got 40 million bucks. You know, it's like you get caught in this this loop where you never catch that carrot that's hanging in front of you. And, uh, you know, that's why I love that Thoreau quote. It's, it's not what you have, it's what you don't need that makes you wealthy. And, you know, to be fair, I, at a young age, I knew I didn't want to have kids. And so that freed me up <clears throat> to really focus much more on freedom and experience, uh, rather than worrying about, uh, you know, economic security because it's just me. I don't, I don't need to worry uh, about taking care of kids or, or moving them around and disrupting their, you know, their childhoods. Um, so, you know, that's a pretty selfish decision, some might say, but it, it definitely freed me up to look at life um, in terms of wealth of experience rather than uh, actual, you know, financial wealth. Yeah. It's a fascinating choice. I also find it interesting that comment about uh, selfish. You know, uh, I don't have kids either. And um, say, well, that makes you selfish. It's like, well, really? Go fuck yourself is sort of my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Because the way I look at it is we are given a life. And we were lucky to be born where we were born. Because if we were born in Syria... Uh, it would really fucking suck right now, right? So, it, and we had Jeffrey Kane on. I don't know if you know him. He wrote this awesome book uh, called um, Samsung Rising. He spent a lot of time in, in South Korea, of course, but a bunch of time in North Korea, a bunch of time in China. He's a fascinating journalist. Anyway, you know, one of the questions I asked him because he spent time in North Korea, I said to him, so Jeffrey, how much does it suck? And he said, I think for the average North Korean, it really sucks. Right. And so I guess my point is we get given a life. And if you're lucky enough to be born in the kinds of places you and I were born, then you say, well, you can do what you want with that life. And I think if you want to be a parent, God bless you. Be a good one. Be a committed one. Raise some good people. The world needs more people. But I, like you, decided I don't want to do that. I want to do other shit. So I'm going to go do that other shit. It's my fucking life. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And how many of the people who would accuse us of being selfish had kids because they wanted to have the experience of having kids? You know, I hear that all the time. Like, I want to have that experience of, so it's about you. It's not about the kid, right? It's about you. You're afraid your life would be empty without that experience. Well, that's even more selfish, I think. You yeah. think? 
I mean, I think you should want to have kids because you want to raise great people and you want to enjoy the experience and hopefully produce, you know, and the next generation of some, of some awesome human beings. But what do I know? I'm not a parent. Yeah. Yeah. Me either. <laughs> so, so what are the big things that you think are going to be different? You know, you, you're one of these folks who's deeply, deeply studied for lack of a better description, human nature and the, and the human animal and the human condition. How do you think we change as a result of all this? Or do we? All this being the, the virus? Yeah, the, and, and everything surrounding it, the economic situation, yeah. what it's doing to our, you know, our relationships, our ability, you know, the whole thing. Yeah, I, I think that, like I said earlier, it, you know, it's sort of analogous to the addict who gets thrown into the drunk tank for a while and has, you know, goes through withdrawal. And then there's like an opportunity for a fresh start, right? Um, I think that uh, a lot of businesses are going away um, because people are realizing that they don't need them. and. Um, I think that, you know, it's hard to, to articulate this, but I feel like when the American dream was, was actually um, available, then it was a very, it was very difficult to get people to look away from it. Right. Um, but now that the American dream is gone, the middle class is decimated. Uh, union jobs are practically non-existent. Um, even you know, two working class incomes don't combined uh, don't provide enough to raise a family comfortably. You know, people are are being bankrupted because they got sick or got into a car accident. Um, I think that. Because the opportunity to live the American dream is gone, people are much more open to considering alternatives. The playwright Arthur Miller once said that an era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted. And I think that we are at the end of an era. Uh, we're at the end of the era of American superiority, American exceptionalism, um, where people both in and outside of the United States look at us and say, "Those they know how to do it. That's the way you run an economy. That's the way you run a society. I think, you know, we're being, I know you don't like to talk about politics, um, but I think that in so many different ways, American society is being uh, exposed as corrupt and empty and essentially um, pathological. And so I think that, you know, that's obviously causing a lot of pain for people, but I think the positive aspect is that people are considering alternatives. You know, when I, my wife and I wrote um, Sex at Dawn, it was published in 2010, and we were working on it. It was supposed to be published a couple of years earlier, but, you know, because I'm essentially a lazy person. It ended up coming out in 2010 and it worked out perfectly because I think people weren't really ready for the message three years earlier. I think there's um, things have to really get bad. Again, like an addict, you have to hit rock bottom. Things have to 
be so bad that you're willing to consider alternative um, perspectives. With Sex at Dawn, I think by the time that book came out, virtually everyone, you know, had either grown up with divorced parents or had, you know, was divorced themselves or had been cheated on or was cheating on someone or had cheated. Like everyone had some personal experience of the failure of standard sexual monogamy. And so they, when that book came out, they were ready to say, all right, what's, what's the argument here? Like what, you know, I'm open to considering an alternative. Um, and I think the same thing with civilized to death. I, I feel like it came out at a time when people are maybe 10 years ago, it wouldn't have, they wouldn't have been open to this message, but I think people are looking around saying, this isn't working. I'm not happy. I don't know people. Most of my friends aren't happy. Um, you know, we, if you're in your twenties, thirties, even forties, you know that you're not likely to have uh, the kind of retirement security your parents did. Um, you know, you're not, every generation before was making more money than their parents, had things better than their parents. Now it's peaked and it's starting to go down. Um, you know, the healthcare system's a shambles. We've got more people in prison than any other country in the world. It, school shootings, you know, you can go on and on and just say, man, this isn't working anymore. So I think people are looking for alternatives. And we touched on it a little earlier when I was talking about things that you could bring from prehistory into the present, whether it's a fireplace or, you know, uh, working less, taking a nap when you feel like it, putting up a hammock and looking at the stars. But I think there are also social and economic uh, aspects to this. I see a lot more people, young people, who are saying, you know what, I want to go buy land in a small town with my friends and you know, build a house together, pool our resources, take care of each other. I see people you know, our age in their 50s who are saying, why should we go to a nursing home in 20 years? Why don't we all buy a house together, a big house, and we can, we can pay a nurse ourselves. You know, we can pay a cook. We can hire staff to take care of a dozen of us, you know, and it's cheaper and we have more control and we're living with people we love. There are ways that we can take care of each other that are um, economically feasible and will create a much better quality of life for all of us. Um, and so I think people are starting to say, wait a minute, you know what? This society's been lying to me. I'm going to start making my own decisions. I'm going to look at other, uh, other options. I think that's a fantastic opportunity. So uh, fascinating. A couple things that pop to mind for me. Um, one is, and I know this, this is probably going to sound like I've lived on the West Coast for too long, but what the fuck? Uh, are we in the cocoon here, Christopher? Right. Is this what, is this what the, is this what the, is this what the butterfly feels like in the cocoon? Like, did we, you know, we were lava for a while there or larva and it, it was going. And in February, the larva party was on fire, right? At least we thought, right. The economy and then go, go, go and consume and drones are going to fly me shit to my, you know, hookers to the front door. I don't know what they're right. Like just, all this stuff is going on, right? And then we, to your point, we broke the present, like it all broke. And so are we in the cocoon? 
Yeah, quite possibly. And honestly, I think the president's been broken for a long time for most people. Um, you know, you and I are very fortunate that we we're isolated and, and insulated from a lot of that. But, you know, as I said, the middle class in America has been broken for, you know, 30 years. Um, globalization destroyed, uh, you know, any chance to make a living in the United States with your body, right? Just go down to the factory and get a job and uh, earn a decent living. That's gone. All those jobs are gone and they're not coming back. So I, I think, yeah, I think the president's been broken for quite a while in the U.S. And, um, but there was still enough money and enough, uh, you know, the, the, the marketing of the American dream was still successful enough that even, you know, Joe the plumber, who had no chance of ever being rich, was, you know, voting against taxes on millionaires. Um, you know, we, we've been able to convince people to vote against their own interests, but I think that's over. I think people are, you know, I think people are starting to see that the political class is not serving them. I think Trump was a protest vote. I think Obama was a protest vote in a lot of ways. And I think, uh, people are going to keep voting against the status quo. And, uh, you know, that could be a right-wing populist or a left-wing populist. It could go in lots of different directions. But I think, um, yeah, the United States is uh, desperate for radical change. And it's going to happen whether we like it or not. That's the problem. You know, we can do it the easy way or we can do it the hard way. But either way, it's going to happen. Right it's now, happening it feels like right we're now. We're kind of doing it the hard way, <laughs> although it does. you know we're not having a civil war or anything like that. So I mean, there's there's <laughs> there, there's degrees of hard way, I guess. I don't know. Do you want to speculate on who who wins the uh, next election? <laughs> we're waiting uh, into these waters. Yeah, I I wonder if there will be a next election. That's that's what I'm concerned about. I see moves being made by the Trump administration that suggest they're not really concerned about um, another administration coming in. And um, yeah, that, that's what I'm, I'm watching for. Like, will there be an election or, you know, he's trying to shut down the post office. Uh, you know, they're resistant to voting by mail. So if and if the pandemic comes back, as it's predicted to strongly in the fall, could be pretty easy to just say, oh, we're not going to be able to do this. You know, voting by mail. And I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I hold some views on the right and I hold some views on the left and somewhat libertarian and whatever. So I'm there's nobody really. I feel that represents me and I, I I'm not also, I'm not also tribal about it. Right. So there's some things I, about Trump, I can't stand, but when he gets it right, I'm going to give it to him. Right. And, and vice versa. Right. Yeah. So I, I try not to be, you know, one of those folks, but um, it, 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 it seems fascinating and to me upsetting the politic the pol turning a C-19 into politics. And I was disappointed by both sides. I don't know why Joe Biden didn't come forward and say, hey, look, you know what? We can argue about what to do. We, we, we disagree on 99.9% .9 of the things out there. But like right now, there's two things we agree on. Number one, 
We need to save as many lives as possible. And number two, we need to bring this economy back to life as responsibly and as safely as possible. And everything else is bullshit. So like, I, I, I really, I don't know, maybe I'm just a fucking stupid live in some fairy la-la land. I really expected to see at least a few months of solidarity with the parties. Um, and we've seen some of it, of course, but we haven't seen what I, the sort of post 9-11 solidarity that I hoped we would see. Yeah, I, I, I suspect that it's impossible, you know, to, to not politicize a situation where you're making decisions about um, distribution of trillions of dollars. You know, that's politics. That's, you know, you're going to give it to the banks, you're going to bail out the airlines, or are you going to give it um, directly to people? Universal basic income or, you know, infusions into the banking system. That's politics at its deepest, most, you know, fundamental level, I think. Yeah, we could talk about politics for hours. I'm I'm kind of like you. I, I, in fact, I did a series on my podcast where I said, um, okay, for you know, every episode, I'm going to talk about one thing where I agree with Trump, just because there are things where I agree, at least with his stated positions, if not the things he's actually done. Um, you know, one of them is immigration, for example. You can't just have you know, anyone coming across the border uh, having a baby now that baby's an American citizen. Now everyone can, that just makes no sense. I've lived all over the world. I lived in Spain for 20 years. You know, you can't do that. You can't, you know, it's, that's an absurd immigration policy. Um, and uh, you know, there, there are things where I, I can agree, not so much with Trump as a person, but with some of the, um, the positions that that party holds. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm way farther left than anyone in the United States. You know, from my perspective, the politics in the United States are, it's a show. Frank Zappa said, politics is the entertainment division of the military industrial complex. That's pretty (laughs) much a great quote. Yeah. (laughs) We need, where the fuck's Frank Zappa? We need Frank Zappa right now. And we fucking need George Carlin too. No shit. Yeah, I think that all the time. I I know his daughter. I had her on my podcast. Oh wow, that's awesome. She's she's cool. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think that all the time. I mean, you've seen. I guess you saw his late concerts, um, his special where he said, "You know, there's a club, and you ain't in it." <laughs> not not only did I see it, as fate would have it, Chris. He came on his last tour to Silicon Valley. You know, we live in Santa Cruz and he played this place that's, I don't know, half an hour from our house. And of course we got tickets and it turned out to be his last tour. And he opened, he opened with the, uh, I'm a thoroughly modern man, right? That whole riff. And so we got to see that live and then a whole bunch of other shit. And he was fucking unbelievable. And I, I think he was dead. I don't know, a year and a half or so later. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Santa Cruz is a good town. I know a lot of people there. Spent a lot of time around there. This is a it's it's uh, been voted one of the top five happiest places in in the United States of America. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of very cool things about this town. You know, we have our problems. <laughs> leave those to the side for now. But for the most part, you know what? I mean, you know, you've been here. And the other thing that's great about Santa Cruz. 
uh, that we don't get enough credit for. We have fucking great food here, man. Legendary foods. There our chefs are great. Our family owned independent restaurants are strong and many of them have been uh, we'll see what happens but many of them have been working hard throughout this crisis and uh, some of them have been growing in some ways which is interesting and so we're doing everything we can to support our local restaurants because man santa cruz is a great place for food yeah yeah i like it a lot one of my buddies uh kyle tierman grew up there he's a big wave surfer Grew up, a you know, block from the ocean. He's he's actually driving right now on his way out to Colorado to visit us. So, um, yeah, he's a great guy. Uh, and through him, I've met fantastic people there. I, I just like the vibe of the town too. It's got that sort of beach casual. Everyone's in flip flops and bicycles, and it's a pretty comfortable place to live. And you can still uh, wear your pajamas to the nicest restaurant in Santa Cruz, and no one gives a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't even on the scale of weird. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now, Chris, I, you know, clearly I could talk to you for tw- 12 hours straight, uh, <laughs> but I do want to be respectful of your time. Any other things you want to touch on before we wrap? I think we covered it. Muhammad Ali to George Carlin, man. That's pretty much <laughs> the entire spectrum of my experience. All right. Well, I can't thank you enough. And, um, I just, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to hang out in your brain. Thank you. Thank you. Let's get you on my podcast one of these days. I'd love to anytime and you're welcome back anytime. Um, I'd, I'd be stoked to do it. Thanks. All right. Well, maybe we'll do it in person next time I'm in, in the cruise. Oh, I would love that. I would right. love that. Thank right. you, brother. Thank you. Well, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, with Dr. Christopher Ryan as much as I did. And we would like to say thanks. Thanks, Chris, for hanging out. You can find him on the internet at chrisryanphd.com. That's chrisryanphd.com. My friends at onelifefullylive.org, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Now's a good time to work on that, work on ourselves, right? Try to make ourselves a little bit different. My friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants want to help you scale you. Visit bottleneck.online for the power of a virtual assistant and my friends at DeVry University are making a giant difference today check them out at D-E-V-R-Y dot E-D-U if you're in the B2B space in Silicon Valley check out Atre.net my friends at Atrenet have been building legendary B2B websites for over 20 years A-T-R-E dot N-E-T and now if you can make a difference Now's the time to open your checkbook and uh, make some charitable contributions if, if you can at all. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for inf- informational purposes. And this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All right, do remain perturbed. Uh, I must warn you, the creators of this oddcast were more than likely consuming libations. <laughs> Speaking of libations, we are produced and edited by my friend, legendary podcast uh, producer Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J build Lockhead.com and do all kinds of technical awesomeness around here. Show notes by Diane Gervasio and uh, scheduling and keeping my ass in line Candy Dandy herself. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. There's no stopping the Cretans from hopping. Adam West is the real Batman. George Carlin was right. Listen to Katie Lang. Only buy pasture-raised, free-range eggs. Uh, Again, thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin. 
This odd cast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Senator Richard Burr. Sorry, Dick. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe. Take good care. Stay legendary. And of course, follow your different.